You're listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm the CEO of the podcast, Mitch Alexander. <laughs> I'm the COO of the pod, Tom McLean. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm OHS uh, officer. <laughs> and I'm the diversity officer, Evie. <laughs> And as always, we've got Isaac in the mailroom in our ears, fact-checking and screaming that coal is a buyer's market and we've got to get in quick. Now is the time. Bye, bye, bye. Um, Isaac doing all the actual work. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm just thinking about all the roles that Isaac would actually fill in a corporate thing and it is legitimately like it's HR, it would be research, it would be the customer-facing part of it as well. Like so much of it is just like us just being like, yes, I speak into a microphone and Isaac just frantically like making sure it all looks normal and respectable each week. Every week, I can't believe these motherfuckers are speaking into a microphone again. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't just say things. Please make sure you know what you're talking about. I think as well, when I say Isaac's in our ears fact-checking, what actually happens is we just spout bullshit and he does his best to, like, stretch the truth in links that he can find. Like, I guess, I (laughs) guess you could say Alan Tudge is a kidnapper. (laughs) Don't give away the pipeline, Mitch. Everyone will do it. Big news this week. New South Wales has the Roni now, uh, which is bad. It's bad. We don't. Yeah, that's We're bad all news, in Melbourne. <laughs> we don't have the Roni. We're quite smug about it. But we also don't want anybody else to have the Roni. We want them to be smug about it as well. We want a world of smugness and no Roni. Yeah, ideally. <laughs> but that's not where we are right now because uh, the Roni is in the, the North Beaches? Yeah, the Sydney? Northern Beaches of New South Wales. So it's about an hour out of Sydney. Yeah, it's not Sydney. It's a different place. Yes, okay. North Sydney and Northern Beaches are different. Northern The Northern Beaches is largely sort of affluent, uh, by the coast, um, you know, retiree kind of area. Um, and this outbreak has quite likely come about from People who have travelled from overseas who didn't isolate uh, while they were getting tested and because they've been travelling widely while they weren't tested, this has started off a minor outbreak in the northern beaches. I say minor and it's been like about 60 cases in total in the last like two to three Mm. days, which is not good. But as we all know, yeah, this spreads real fast. Yeah, it's also like a minor COVID outbreak turns into a major COVID Very quickly. That's the sort of, that's the problem with COVID, you know? Yeah. Uh, The good thing is that it it looks like contact tracing is doing its job as it should in New South Wales and they've traced um, the vast majority, I would say like about 90% of the people who were, uh, have been infected so far. Um, Oh, thank God. Which is great. That that means that they're quite likely to isolate everyone who is being has been infected or is like you know a close contact of those being infected. That being said, don't travel to New South Wales or from if you're in New South Wales. Don't travel out. Stay there, please. (laughs) Follow your health directives. Um, But it's Christmas. I'll miss out on my ham. Just just miss out on your ham with your folks. Yeah, that's the thing that's gotten me about all of this is, like, you do see those things like, you know, from 11.59 tonight, you won't be able to do X. And there's always just a mad scramble of people just like, I've got to do all the X I can right now. It doesn't matter what it is. Like, I remember when there was, you know, you can't go out to do certain exercise at night before a curfew kicked in. So, the night before, everyone just went as hard as they could. (laughs) And I've never understood that this year. I mean, everyone's handling it differently. Good on everyone. But for me, it was like, okay, if in two days... My entire state is entirely locking down. This isn't the time for me to flee on an aeroplane as quick as I can. This is me just like resigning to the fact now that I probably should stay in place for the safety of everyone else. 
I think it's I don't know about that, Mitch, because I've done some, some reading on how the, the virus spreads, and it really does wait until the laws kick in before it becomes <laughs> contagious. I think it's just to give everyone over 40 who grew up watching the cannonball run just a moment to live out their Burt Reynolds fantasies. I think they go, oh, my Reynolds God, fantasies. I've only got... I've only got five hours to make it to the Victorian border before the pigs get me. Get that CB radio. Get the kids into the sedan. I've been training my whole life for this. <laughs> Absolutely no one from the northern beaches calls them pigs. <laughs> they call them friend. But they do once they put on those aviators. Anyway, stay safe. Just, Don't you're like just scaring me. Uh, hopefully, hopefully no one. You know, too many people won't get. The Roni, uh, and you know, contact tracing does its job, and people stay in their houses and isolate after they've been tested, or even before mm. they've been tested. Wear a mask yeah. on public transport, for God's sake! Yeah, yeah, for real. Stay safe, and by that we don't mean don't get the Roni. We mean act as though you already have it, and stay safe in trying not to give it to other people. That's mm. the biggest factor. Yeah, I just want to be like really earnest up top. We all, all of us, went through a really <clears throat> harsh lockdown. It was really intense. It was stressful and anxiety-inducing in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. So, if you're in New South Wales and you're listening to this, you are allowed to feel however you want about this. Please be kind to yourself and to others, and you will get through it to the other side. Just be sensible and be kind. Don't let anyone tell you you should do crafts. Just play video games. A little bit of good news. Uh, the Jabberung birthing trees battle has had a victory in court. Uh, basically, the, the, the federal court has made a ruling that a new decision has to be made over whether to protect the trees or not. It's kind of crazy that they're not just like, you have to protect the trees. They're like, mm. we've got to make a new decision about whether we will or not. Mm. Uh, but the, they, they have also specifically stipulated that the person who makes that decision has to be someone <laughs> other than Environment Minister Susan Lee, <laughs> which is so funny. Yeah, I love this. So if you didn't catch this whole saga, um, we've covered it a lot in previous episodes. We'll put those links in the notes. But basically, there was going to be a big highway built in Victoria and they went, we'll put it right through this sacred Aboriginal site with all of these ancient trees that have, like, huge, significant cultural value to the local people. Um, Several hundred went, years what? old. Oh, yeah, hundreds of years old. Like, really, and these are, like, you know, there's a whole history about these birthing trees. They're, like, attached to specific people. They're super important. I'm not going to go into it too much because you can find a lot more legitimate information than what I can give you. But... Everyone went, this is fucked. These are so important. That'd be like putting a highway through, I don't know, some ancient The Shrine of Remembrance. If the Shrine of Remembrance was something that we grew over 500 years instead of just building out of bricks. Yeah. And basically the government and the state road authority and the environment minister went, "Mm, nah, reckon we will put the highway through anyway. Even though a highway can be put elsewhere. And they did have other very legitimate options for where to put the highway. They went, yeah. no, we're going to send in the cops. We're going to arrest a bunch of people. We are going to fight so hard to put the highway specifically through these trees. We are going to sneak in guys with chainsaws to cut down some of these trees when they're not even meant to be doing that. That's how bad we want to fuck these particular trees up. And so it's <laughs> great that a court has gone Wait, no, you guys are all massively biased, obviously. Susan Lay, what are you doing as environment Susan Lee. Susan Lee? Damn it. Susan Lee. I said Susan Lee before and now he was corrected. Okay. <laughs> Susan... <laughs> Mitch! <laughs> I think it's live. <laughs> Susan-, Susan Lee specifically, you are obviously massively biased. You cannot be involved in this decision. I mean, obviously, 
fire her. The minister's analysis fails to grapple with the complex and nuanced cultural and spiritual heritage associated with the trees, the judgment read, um, and it went on specifically in excluding her from the judgment. An informed lay observer might apprehend that the minister may not conduct a reconsideration with an open mind. So, <laughs> so good. <laughs> I also like that the judge specifically went in on this really obscure uh, case from years ago when the Turkish government tried to build a highway near Gallipoli. Like this is oh. this is my thing about you know how I, oh. I've mentioned a few times about like um uh, we should we we could get a green energy grid in this country if we just appealed to nationalism and said fucking New Zealand's beating us in emissions fuck those bastards like the judge did a similar sort of thing when it was like hey. Remember when we got up in arms about a site connected to the Anzac myth and and cultural like history of that place, and it was horrible because they wanted to just bulldoze straight through it. Well, this is the same mm. thing, which is such a good way of framing it for people to be like, "Oh, I get it." Like yeah. it's they're actually not really <laughs> connected. It's a shame that they can be connected like that, um, because you know the idea for war criminals. But the the main thing <laughs> is that like I thought that was a really interesting way of framing it. But also like yeah, just to, just to really easily say because usually the government gets away on that shit. It's like you need to reassess what you've done, and they'll go, all right, I'll go away and think about it. And the judge is going, that 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 not you. You're just going to come back with the same bullshit. We need someone else to do it, which- It's yeah. so wild that <laughs> Australia somehow has this closer connection to this point where we invaded another country a hundred years ago than to a hundred, multi-hundred year old <laughs> sacred site in Australia. Well, I mean, if you, if you, if you discount racism, yeah, I guess. <laughs> no, it is 100% racism. A little thing I did want to sort of mention as well is the amount of like minutia going around in the arguments on who approved what and when about these birthing trees. Because there has been like, you know, they did consultation with a group that's officially recognised in the area as custodians of the land and they didn't find any sort of significance for particular trees and particular blah, 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 blah. Just really specific fine-grown ah. stuff between government bodies. Mm. And my thing is always coming back to like, that. that may be the case, but also... People are protesting, so maybe there's something to it. Yeah, and that also speaks to how um, governments can find cultural representatives or someone who claims to be a cultural representative or group to suit their needs when they need it. And this was also in the everything. case. Oh, yeah, this is in everything. And this is one of those things that um, in recent years, we I feel like we've seen like a lot of uh, usage of yeah. um, adversely for getting through red tape. Exactly, for mining. So, Rio Tinto, yeah. uh, using that to get through to bulldoze cultural sites. Uh, it, it's a real problem. It's, it's the thing as well, you know, they find scientists to say things about climate change as well, or, you know, protests. They can allow certain protests with a permit. Like, the government can control the official stuff all the time. Maybe let's not worry about the official stuff because, you know, when we don't worry about the official stuff, good things like this happen. Court cases go through and they get victory because of the groundswell, not because of these official recommendations and official recognition that comes from it. It's also that when you're looking at these, the, the, the sort of minutia of the thing, it, it, it's a dodge for sort of zooming out and looking at the big picture. Like this same highway five years ago had a, let's, you know, quote unquote planning blunder where they accidentally destroyed 900 native trees that they, they originally estimated that the impact was going to be like yeah. 200. They're like, oh, whoopsie-daisy, we accidentally destroyed 700 more trees. than we Like, Vic Rhodes just doesn't give a fuck about yeah. trees at all, and they see anything that stops them from cutting down trees to build highways as annoying bureaucracy. Mm. And this is a, 
just a baked into the cultural Vic roads. So we're like, oh, who specifically signed off on this particular blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, probably somebody who doesn't give a fuck because nobody there does. Like, it's everybody. Yeah, it's the bureaucratic viewpoint of seeing a tree as red tape. It's just in the way. This week, speaking of the Roni, uh, was the release of the Victorian Ombudsman's report into the Tower Lockdown. Now, what is the Tower Lockdown, you may ask? What is the Tower Lockdown? <laughs> Tell us what the Tower <laughs> Lockdown is. So, back in July... <laughs> Sorry, Evie. Sorry, Evie. <laughs> back in July, which was exactly 20 years ago <laughs> in Victorian time, on the 4th of July, right just before the peak of the second wave when we had to go into hard lockdown again. The first communities that were affected by this hard lockdown was the public housing towers. So there there are a couple of housing towers in uh, Melbourne who have 3,000 people in the buildings. At the time, on the 4th of July, it was revealed through contact tracing and through testing that a lot of residents um, had come down with COVID. So immediately there was a... quite a real risk of a serious outbreak in the public towers. The report that has come out this week is into the response to those outbreaks. What happened is that all the towers were locked down effective immediately on the 4th of July with no recourse for getting outside for food, for groceries, medication, medication, pretty much anything. They were locked inside the towers with a very heavy police presence. Um, they and were with, literally detained. Yes. They were, they, it, was a, yeah. it was jail. Like, there was no indication of when they would be allowed out. There was very poor communication with the community as to what they were allowed to do or even what was going on. Yeah. I mean, this is like the, the demographics of these towers is like very, very overwhelmingly migrants and uh, the sort of rate of English speaking is, you know, nowhere near as high in, as in the Australian general population. And the sort of efforts that were made to actually effectively communicate what was going on was really, really minimal from Victoria Police and the DHHS. Yeah. And they it was had a like, huge mess. What was it, like 15 minutes notice or something before Pretty cops much. turned up? Pretty much. So this is what happened. The cops turned up as the press conference was happening um, that the towers were being locked down. So there was pretty mm. much no warning. God. You know, any any people who weren't even residents of the building weren't immediately allowed to leave. Mm. There were actually – the report actually says this, that there is registered 3,000 people, about 3,000 people in the buildings, but there was an additional 100 to 200 people who were not registered residents of those buildings. Mm. And if they were in the building at the time the lockdown happened, they weren't immediately allowed to leave until they could confirm that they weren't residents. The police mm. just, you know, didn't allow anyone to leave the building. And the cops were sent in well before any kind of healthcare, social workers, services of yeah. any sort. Just a shitload of police. Yeah. Just fucking imagine. Yeah. Like. Who the fuck is watching a Dan Andrews presser at 1pm? Like, it's just like, <sighs> but if you're at home and then all of a sudden cops rock up and tell you you can't leave and it's a government thing and yet you have no idea what's going on, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah, and everybody you ask only responds in a language that you don't even speak and you just, oh, can I get medicine? Blah, 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 blah. Like, it's just. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. 
it, so the the actual lockdown happened on 4 p.m. on a Saturday. So that's likely a time when you know, like people are out shopping, people are out, you know, you know, just on a Saturday afternoon, just doing normal things as you would with your family. And then suddenly this happens with absolutely no warning. Like I actually would encourage if you have the time or the inclination, I would actually encourage people to read this report. There's lots of um, statements from residents of the towers of how this affected them. You know, they also go into detail about the lack of communication. So the report is actually done to determine whether there were human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. Also, one thing I want to clarify. What was the result there? <laughs> one thing I want to clarify is that, you know, this lockdown happened to all the public housing towers. The detention orders were lifted after a few days for all the towers. However, there was one building in particular, which is 33 Alfred Street, where the orders were basically remained de facto for two weeks on 400 residents because up to 10% of the residents there had tested positive. So the detention orders were like lifted for all the buildings, but because of like the requirements for, you know, staying isolated and staying in place if you were a close contact of someone who tested positive, they were still essentially locked in the building with cops outside telling them that you can't leave. Mm. So it, it was an incredibly stressful situation. People lost income, people lost their jobs, people couldn't get food and medication adequately. And then like, you know, after two weeks, then, you know, those kind of orders eased. So for this report, the ombudsman decided to focus specifically on the experiences of the people at 33 Alfred Street and in determining whether there were human rights abuses. They did find that there was a human rights abuse. They oh, said, no shit. <laughs> no shit, exactly. In very specific terms, they said that the immediate lockdown itself was a human rights abuse because um, the implementation of it um, was not overseen in a way that could be considered to be, you know, even considered under human rights laws that we have in Victoria. Right, because they basically surprise locked them up. Exactly. They didn't give any warning. They didn't give any sort of communication that would be considered under the Human Rights Code. Um, The ombudsman actually discovered that this decision was made by a cabinet decision earlier in the day. Now, the cabinet that made this decision is the crisis cabinet um, that was convened by Daniel Andrews for discussing all the public directives that go into, you know, managing a pandemic, as you would imagine. Mm. All these cabinet discussions are all either heavily redacted or they just simply refuse to provide them whenever there is an investigation. And Daniel Andrews has the right to do that. So in this investigation, the Ombudsman only found out that this decision was made because the Deputy Chief Health Officer said, I actually... We'd earlier in the day we discussed, you know, like at least a forty-eight hour warning and only a four to five day lockdown. Mm. So they were planning to lock them down anyway, but giving them enough warning and to have enough communication to say, okay, get your affairs in order, get your food in order, and then Mm. we'll lock you down. Mm. But the cabinet decision in the middle of the day overrode that and suggested locking down that very same day. And the chief health officer basically said, "Oh yeah, I was given this directive." in the car on the way to the press conference and I made the decision within 15 minutes to say, yes, I agree with this, but this isn't based on any health advice that I gave. That's crazy. And, oh, my and, God. And that meant that basically within minutes of making that decision, they were able to get hundreds of police there, but it took them days to actually organise food, medicine, 
all of those follow-up things. Yeah. So th- the reason why I, I wanted to sort of talk about the specifics of how the lockdown went out and also what the ombudsman was able to find, like, you know, contravened human rights. By the way, if you want to know, like, this, the nitty-gritty, it, it broke Section 38.1 of the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act 2006 in Victoria. That was the, the – that actual immediate lockdown broke that. Okay. Yeah, what does that mean? For us who aren't savvy. So, the, the Section 38 of the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act in Victoria is basically the right to humane treatment when deprived of liberty. Right. And it's right. that's what's recognised in the Charter of Human Rights. And so, this decision didn't – it was incompatible with your right to have humane treatment and it also – it the decision didn't result from proper consideration of relevant human rights in that regard. Because that's what they were mm. saying at the time. You get better treatment in prison. You get medicine. You get food. You get all the things you need. Whereas a lot of these people didn't actually have the basic necessities of life. Exactly. And, and I, that de facto um, detention that I mentioned earlier of the residents of 33 Alfred Street, that actually continued to break Section 38.1, just mm. the, the the right not to be deprived of liberty, except in accordance mm. with procedures established by law. Because, you know, that the, the continued lack of communication, the lack of, you know, being able to provide, uh, cre- like, you know, food and medicine in the way that they needed, and also, like, even mm. just even exercise. Mm. Like, it, it yeah, was they just- had them, they had cage out the back. Yeah, and, and that was considered mm. degrading treatment and, um, you know, the, it deprived them of their right to humane treatment. Again, under the sa- very same clause. And I believe there was an official statement somewhere around this report that was like, okay, in hindsight, we regret putting the cage where the public could see it. Like, yeah. we shouldn't have put it out the front. <laughs> we should have put it out the back so they couldn't see this big jail cage we made. And and these are, a lot of these residents had just come from refugee camps, had just come from like, or like were from places overseas where they were fleeing persecution and detention and stuff. And now they find themselves in this situation where it's like, surprise, cops at your door, you're in jail now. Yeah. And, like, again, the reason why I want to bring this up is, like, I don't want to split hairs about, like, what exactly broke human rights. I I realise that there's been a lot of, in communicating this report, there's always going to be an element of editorialising. So when I've seen it talked about on Twitter and, like, social websites, it's sort of narrowed down to we broke the human rights of everyone in the towers in detaining them, full stop. Mm. Which is, like, okay, not pedantically correct, but it's still ethically unbelievable the way in which it was done. It was just predicated on a cabinet decision that we're not allowed to see. What does that mean Mm. for future outbreaks? What does that mean? Why was it purely on the people in that tower and not all the other apartment buildings around them that could also be in the yeah. same circumstance. I mean, I think you and yeah. I know why that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's racism again. There was a lot of people on Twitter that I saw who were like, oh, well, you know, obviously human rights abuses, but, you yeah. know, we did need to contain the virus. <laughs> oh. like, you, 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 how do you start with that? Like, human don't rights, violate but. human rights. You can do it's, – it's not like, oh, this is the only thing that we could do to contain the virus because we had other approaches. We gave people notice all over the place. Yeah. We were complaining about it at the time. There was a huge fucking fuss at the time. It's not like, oh, it's a difficult decision. Just just make better decisions that aren't racist, for God's sake, if possible. You've got the North Beaches in New South Wales now. I would bet you any money they are not all being held inside their houses by cops with a 15-minute notice. They've got 
a strong suggestion not to yeah. go out partying in Central City. <laughs> heavily, heavily encouraged to please not go outside a lot. Heavily encouraged to not have more than 10 people in your home at the time. Like, and yeah, as McLean said, like the only other thing I can really remember about the the lockdown as it happened was like mining billionaires trying to take cases to state Supreme Courts about the like legal standing to close borders. But in every other thing, like human rights were pretty well like at least looked at and, like, legally respected in a way. Yeah, but not these towers. Not these towers. Here's the thing that I fucking remember from the tower lockdowns is seeing a shitload of cops out the front. I looked at the, the bloody dock. There was one cop for every six people in the tower. So there's a shitload of cops out there and so few of them were wearing masks or maintaining social distancing. Yeah. Like, all of the footage you see, they're all just crowded together. They've got their fucking masks down around their neck. They're like, oh, it's really important that we stop the the outbreak of COVID here but not follow any of the fucking basic precautions ourselves like the whole thing was just fucked and i'm glad that it's come out that they were violating people's human rights because that it, it was a fucking clusterfuck yeah yep. so uh, the final point to make of this is just to remember like you know a lot of the decisions that are being made are things that we don't get to see like this entire mm. affair is reminiscent of the entire hotel inquiry that has been happening mm. the quarantine hotel inquiry and the final report um the responsibility of the final call of like, you know, the, the who made the decision for the hotels and the guards and that sort of thing is all extremely heavily redacted. So we'll never find out who exactly was responsible in the same way as we won't find out who in the cabinet made that decision to close down the buildings in the same day. And we'll never, like, we, we didn't even get to find that out because until the, the deputy chief health officer said, it wasn't my decision, it was brought down by the cabinet. And these people go on to have other jobs. <laughs> and we never know what decisions they made. <laughs> yeah. Disgusting. Daniel, release the papers. Last week, Lang predicted that China might ban all imports of Australian coal indefinitely. And boy, is there egg on his face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to yeah, it wasn't even a prediction. I, I remember Lang asking and hoping that they would. <laughs> this, is, this is not looking good on my secret government record. Uh, this, is, this is like when Trump went, hey, maybe Russia should leak Hillary's email. <laughs> yeah. um, but yes, China has done what I've asked and they have uh, fairly officially banned the import of Australian coal. I say fairly officially. This has been reported by China state media. And I figure if China state media says what the state <laughs> is doing, that's kind of straight from the horse's mouth. Um, Scott Morrison has, has gone, oh, well, that's, well, that's just media. That's just, I don't reckon they will. And it's like, well, they haven't been taking Australian coal for several months now. You've got millions of tons of Australian coal sitting out there not being taken by China. You've got these, like, poor workers on these coal ships, which are owned by, like, they're, like, Indian companies or these workers from various places around the world working for ships for companies that move coal stuck on these ships for months at a time, unable to unload, unable to even sell their ships, basically stuck, trapped on these ships. It's not a story I'm going to go into, but it's crazy stuff. Because we've got this crazy coal brinkmanship. <laughs> but yeah, so then China actually says, well, China state media says, oh, they're banning Australian coal indefinitely. And ScoMo's just like, well, how, how do we 
How do we know, though? Yeah. Wait for the government to say it. Maybe it's not real. Yeah. Maybe they're doing so. I reckon it's because he doesn't have control over the Australian state media. Mm. Like, he's like, oh, the, the ABC gets to say whatever they want. They're bloody controlled by leftists. So, yeah. surely the, the China state media. Nah, it's a different thing, bro. Yeah. I really love the way in which Australian um, journalists say Chinese state media as if we don't have, like, a national state right. media. <laughs> like, just the really ominous way in which they say it, Chinese state media. Well, that, that's our, our, our state media doesn't unc- – well, doesn't usually re- – un- I was going to say they don't uncritically report propaganda for the government, but they – They do. They don't not do that, but they, they do have some independence, which is not true of Chinese state media. But I think this, this is the main thing. Yeah. Why, where Scott Morrison is confused is because in Australia, it's our private sector media which reports uncritically the like, <laughs> news <laughs> reports from the government. Yeah. In, yeah it's cause, because China doesn't have a for-profit media Murdoch-type figure, Scott Morrison's like, but but who would have leaked something to the state press behind closed doors? <laughs> they didn't say sources. They said the government. <laughs> I'm just going to wait until Sky News tells me that uh, <laughs> Australia's, uh, the, the China's just banned Australian coal. ScoMo waiting for Alan Jones to like, the Chinese have stopped taking all of our coal. And Scott Morrison's like, oh shit, now it's serious. Okay, yep, yep, yep. Is that okay. an Alan Jones impression? I, I've just realised that I don't know what that man sounds like. Oh, dude, he's he, every single thing he says is like, it's just imbued with this fake gravitas, but it's also really wet because he's old. So he talks- <laughs> A lot. All right, we've got wildly off track. <laughs> wildly <laughs> off track. Um, now, keeping in mind, we don't actually know what Scott Morrison has said here because we're just getting this from ABC, so they <laughs> might be making it up. <laughs> He's also claimed that that this is crazy from China to do this because foreign coal has 50% higher emissions than Australian oh, coal. Just, just all other coal in the world has 50% higher emissions than Australia coal, which is just the dumbest shit. Jesus, um, Lang, can I just genuinely ask you for a sec to, yeah. to explain- Why that's dumb. Why that's dumb. So, like, yeah. Is it true that Australian coal <laughs> is has- what, 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 what's His actual quote is, other countries have 50% higher emissions than Australian coal. That's How does the that actual stack quote. up? So, Australian coal isn't magical. I'm going to start with that. Um, coal oh. comes in grades. And it's basically how energy dense it is. Um, you have really shitty, like, brown coal. That's what we burn in Victoria. Then you got, like, really dense, like, black anthracite. And that is a lot of what, what we mine out. That's the stuff that we say, this is your high grade, you know, good, uh, you know, coal that they use in, in refineries. And, and it's, it's better to ship because it's denser. And so, sure. absolutely, we we sell some high density Australian coal, but so do other countries. And so, so sorry, this just stuff to, occurs around the world. But just for clarity, um, what that essentially yeah. means is, like, with shittier coal, you produce more emissions because you have to burn more of it for the same amount of energy. Yeah, it's not even that simple, and I really don't want to go into it. But it's like shittier coal just has higher water content, but the energy comes from the carbon content, and that's also where the carbon dioxide comes right. from. So. Yeah. It, it 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 doesn't even scale. But no, it's dumb to say foreign coal has 50% higher emissions because foreign countries have coal that's just as good as Australian coal because we don't own all the coal in the world. Uh, and so China's actually increased their contract to buy coal from Indonesia and Russia um, <laughs> and because other places have coal. We do have a lot of coal. We're the number one coal exporter in the world, but there's plenty of other coal out there. God, Scott Morrison sucks so bad. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to get into a trade war with the biggest country, right. the most powerful economic power on earth, and they're just going to go, shut up. I don't think he 
knows it's that bad though. Like I don't think he realizes what exactly he's getting into. It's like when I think of Scott Morrison's like method of thinking, I always think back to him giving himself that stupid like ship trophy for closing the borders and like I stop these. Like that is his mode of thinking. And so he definitely doesn't understand how big this is. We need to send him 60 little coal boats and say, I stopped these. these. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but I reckon Scott Morrison's whole thing is just like, yeah, I'm just going to be an aggressive dickhead to people and then Rupert Murdoch's going to back me up. Hey, China, guess what? Fuck you, China. And China's like, we're stopping Australian coal. He's like, Rupert Murdoch, help me. Rupert Murdoch's like, I don't have a ton of power in China. It's like, what? What? Maybe that? Maybe it's not real. Maybe nothing's happening. Maybe I'm fine. It's like that's not a good defense, go mate. You fucked it. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying to delete it. Defense. <laughs> fucked it so bad because China have gone so hard on the counter as well. Like not like we reported on it last week. They've done some really interesting political moves, but also they've just shit posted their way through it, and they have absolutely creamed Australian politicians. Holy shit. I mean, and anyone who's been paying attention to world politics in the last 5,000 years um, has, <laughs> has learned that you probably don't want to fuck with China. Just like no one has fucked with China and come out better off. China will fuck you up. You can do some, like, some diplomacy. You can kind of strongman them subtly in a few different ways. You can get involved in proxy wars in Vietnam, but you don't directly badmouth China because they will fuck you up. And you definitely don't do it if you're a tiny, shitty little power just, like, next to them that relies on the majority <laughs> of your trade. Like, what I want to take this opportunity to also say that this is not a pro CCP podcast. No, <laughs> sort of no. the human rights and stuff that the, the abuses that China gets up to probably even worse than the Tower lockdown yeah, earlier yeah. this year. Let's go out on a limb and say it. China like, are bad guys. Crazy, no China. Way. I'm going to go out here and say China are bad guys, but they're also bad guys that we do the majority of our trade with. Yeah, who have a much they're bigger very military big than us. bad guys. You know how, so maybe yeah. don't just like it's try the- and take a swipe at them without, yeah. you know, look, not being a fucking idiot about it, Scomo. We, I think we've talked about it in piecemeal since like the you know the ship posting war started. But it's so funny to me to see like every single industry start to like say, "Oh man, this has really fucked us up." Like this week was lobsters, like. Everyone just realized, oh, that's right. We can't oh, ship lobsters. we can't ship lobsters to China anymore. So Australia just has cheap lobsters now because we have to dump all of them here for Christmas. Like I'm gonna have like a thirty dollar lobster for Christmas. I'm so excited. But like, uh-huh. I really it- like that we're dumping our lobsters here, which just means not exporting them. Yeah, that's the thing that I've seen pointed out is. These are our lobsters. We could have cheap lobsters every year if we want, yeah. except we're selling them to them to China, and that's why they're expensive. It's such an exposure of like the the network of trade both in Australia, within Australia, and going out overseas, and what we depend on for income. So much of it is China. So much of Australia's like uh, that thing that we think of as our economy is just reliant on strip mining resources from Australia and selling them overseas. Um, because Scott Morrison's always saying, "Oh, we want lower energy prices." Well, guess what, Scott Morrison? You've just reduced twenty-one percent of your coal exports. That's a lot more coal here. Uh, so there's your cheap energy prices. Coal prices have just crashed worldwide. <laughs> oh, and guess what, Scott? Now that we've got all this coal, it's also the cleanest. Co- it burns fifty percent more efficiently than other coal. So we should be burning it here. Our emissions would be like it'd be so 
good. I'm going to go further. I'm going to say that fucking up our international relationship with China is the biggest positive step this government and maybe any Australian <laughs> government has ever taken on climate change. <laughs> but take that, Julia Gillard, and your shit-ass carbon tax. Right? <laughs> You're nothing on the climate action of ScoMo. The carbon tax was pretty good. The carbon tax was pretty good. But we have just cut off 21% of our coal exports, which... <laughs> <laughs> which is like a hundred million tons of coal a year. And if you count the CO2 in there, and I'm ballparking this, it's about 200 million tons of CO2. And that's about the same as our entire national electricity Holy grid. Holy shit. Holy shit. Fucking I just thought, you know how they're always doing like carbon capture and storage and they're right? trying to figure out how to like, where to bury it. What we do is we put it on a whole bunch of cargo ships and we send them out into the middle of the ocean and then we just leave them there. And yeah. that's how yeah. we get our emissions down worldwide. Fuck yeah. The leave it in the ground campaign just pivots to leave it in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in the port. <laughs> oh, fuck. It's so grim. I don't know what happens if you tip coal overboard. It's probably not great for the local environment, um, but mm, I don't know. don't know. It, <laughs> it might float, actually. That's not awesome. It'll wash up. But! <laughs> yeah, I don't think... <laughs> okay, Christ. okay. So, the government's flipping out about this. All of the coal grogs are going nuts. Matt Canavan, whose brother owns a coal mine that just went out of business because they're bad at that, is like... Is like <laughs> <laughs> what? What? How could China do this to us? Well, we'll strong arm them. We'll raise the price of our iron ore. Now, our iron ore is our number one export, way more than coal. Okay, yeah. we export $55 billion of iron ore to China uh, every year compared to $10 billion for coal. So, Matt Canavan's like, ah, you don't like our coal. What about we fuck up our entire economy? <laughs> <laughs> what about we fuck up the number one export industry in Australia? Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've lost the trade war over coal, but let's see what happens when we lose the trade war over iron ore. That'll show them. We've got one more ace up our sleeve. Drops the ace in a sewer grate. <laughs> Trips over, smashes face on ground. Uh, it, we, yeah, we, thought the, we thought the coal export thing was the end of the entire war. Nah, that was just a small little battle. Look how else we can lose. Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. So... Globally, uh, coal, the coal industry is fucked. Okay. China doesn't want it. Our biggest export market only just above China is Japan, who are also wanting to go carbon neutral by 2050. So they're going to get off coal. Coal mines all over Australia, uh, like Glencore has closed several mines for, for a couple of months because coal is fucked. Coal power stations are being written off as worthless assets. The, the newest coal power station in Australia, the Blue Waters, uh, it's $1.2 billion owned by a Japanese company. They've written it off. It's worth that's, $0 to them. That's massive. That yeah, is huge. massive. That was It's our newest coal plant. It was supposed to be a sure thing for that country. And in the space of a decade, it's now worthless. That rules. Zero. That's so funny. Incredible. <laughs> so, so, banks, aye, aye, aye. coal companies are all going, nah. Coal is dead. You got to get out. You got to get off coal like rats from a sinking ship. Everyone around the world knows that coal is bad, except the Australian government, who are being paid off. Here's my theory. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> I think they're being paid off either by, I want to say, aliens, um, <laughs> or maybe some kind of underwater empire who wants the sea levels to <laughs> rise. Atlantis. The only thing that makes sense. They're being paid to make climate change worse. 
<laughs> I really like that we've just got like, oh, yeah, it's got to be either aliens or Atlantis because if we just say the Australian government is absolutely being paid off by fossil fuel executives to make climate change happen, suddenly that's defamatory. Well, so, like we even, wouldn't no, say that. Not even fossil fuel defamatory. executives are trying to get out of fossil fuel. Yes, it's there are fucking fuel refineries that are saying, please let us go insolvent. This does not work. There are energy companies like <laughs> Shell going like, please, we really want to go carbon neutral by 2050, and it's just the Australian government going, how about we subsidise you with some tax dollars? It's like, no, please let it die. The economy I'm, wants to move on. I'm going to need you to aliens. defame Shell a little bit more because I don't want to hear kind word about Shell on this podcast. Yeah, Shell's not doing that for real. But, so you've got George <laughs> Christensen. Just, oh, my God. So this guy, I can't even list all the ways he's fucked. We'll start with he thinks Trump maybe should have won and there's a, a thing. He's a climate denier. He does weird trips to Southeast Asia for totally legitimate reasons. Um, that make him a security risk. Yeah, George Christensen is the one with the complex internet presence. <laughs> According to what was that Malcolm Turnbull described? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Malcolm Turnbull in his book said that like he takes these trips to Southeast Asia that like put him as a security risk for compromise, mm. and that he mm. has a yeah complex internet history. And yeah, he also did like some weird topless photo, like a photo in a singlet with a whip over his shoulder. He's posed oh, yeah. with a pistol being like leftists feeling lucky which you know should have him in jail and up on you know threatening or terrorism charges but no he's- <laughs> also we're leftists no <laughs> we're never feeling lucky no. have you seen the world but he's not he's not in jail he does chair the trade and investment growth committee in the government as well as several other portfolios um and he wanted his committee to investigate banks and financial regulators over why they're pulling back <laughs> on lending or insuring uh, fossil fuel and mining oh, yeah, projects. Yeah, why could it be, why, George Christensen? Why, why could it be? And Josh Frydenberg, <laughs> you know, Australian government treasurer went, that is a very good question, George Christensen. I also would like an inquiry into this. Why aren't banks lending to coal companies at a time when China has cut off all coal exports and every legitimate country in the world is promising to stop burning <laughs> yeah. coal and no one around the world wants a piece of coal. Sumimoto's what, what just take $1.2 billion of assets. <laughs> Why aren't we making these insurance guarantees? Yeah, for the I s- don't know, guys. For the same reason, I think it's bias. For the same reason the banks won't invest in like a cold fusion plant or like, you know, the, a nuclear warhead terrorist camp. Like it, it, they, they, they don't invest in things that they that you just can't invest in. They're financial institutions. I'm not going to ascribe moral virtue to the banks. They're just not big on losing money. And one more thing they're doing this week, and they do some fuck things every week, is because of COVID making people not drive and fly less, um, we're needing less fuel. And so with fuel refineries in Australia, which are mostly owned by external companies, are going, maybe we'll shut down some of these fuel refineries. You guys look like you don't need that much fuel. And the government's going, no, 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 no. We will pay you an extra cent per litre. Um, taxpayer money, we'll pay you, we'll subsidise you to make more fuel that we don't really need, but we'll pay you to do it. Um, and because if they don't do this, they reckon Australian drivers might have to pay an extra cent a litre for fuel. That, that sounds fine. <laughs> so kind of, if you're not driving, you're, you're paying for people to use more fuel. And this is as well as, you'll remember earlier, Angus Taylor paid $100 million for a fuel stockpile in the USA, which seems oh, like yeah. a silly place to put that now. And they're also really? yeah. putting a bigger tax on electric vehicles. That's in Victoria, actually, not not federally. But Victoria wants to tax electric vehicles 2.5 cents per kilometre 
Um, this does not apply to fuel vehicles. So we're like, oh God, we've got to, got to pay fuel companies to make more fuel, but also we've got to tax people driving electric vehicles. Yeah, we're just like, our entire society is going to collapse if we don't transition away from fossil fuels quickly enough. And then it starts happening quickly outside of government sort of control. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa not that quickly. Right. <laughs> and so let's spend all this money propping up this thing that's collapsing. And then when it does collapse, we'll be like, oh, we're going to need some some more money to get us out of this hole. Uh, where's the money? And Oh, no, we, we gave it all to those fuel companies that just collapsed. Soz. Neat. And that's the aliens. And that's and that's because they're aliens. Yes, the aliens gave them that. <laughs> <laughs> I watched They Live recently. You know, it, it, it's it's not a great movie, but but it checks out. How's the uh, how's the bushfire recovery fund going? That's that's we're recovered, right? It's been a year. Yeah, they've surely they've up. dispersed all the funds. It seems like a year's about enough time to be doing that. Well, guys, as it happens. <laughs> 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 Turns out the Australian Bushfire Recovery Fund has been used by the Scott Morrison government to give money to all of his mates again and to leave people whose communities have been devastated and destroyed uh, in areas where the ecosystem has collapsed to essentially just wallow for a fucking year. There are so many people who have not gotten any support, financial or otherwise, from the government for months after this bushfire, the bushfire season last year and the beginning of this year. Meanwhile... Billionaires like Anthony Pratt are being awarded millions of dollars in these grants from that bushfire recovery fund. Um, mm. The Guardian did some really good reporting on their uh, on their podcast Full Story this week that did a really super deep dive into this, showing that um, so Anthony Pratt, a, a a billionaire, has this company called Vizzy. And Vizzy run a uh, paper mill. It's the Vizzy Tummet Mill. How, and that mill is out in rural Australia, and it wasn't affected directly by the bushfires at all. It no. like it, it didn't get it didn't get fire burnt. It didn't collapse or anything. Blah 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 blah. There was also another company that got a grant for millions of dollars to upgrade a bridge that, again, wasn't directly impacted by the fires. That company has connections to a Cayman Island company. It's a whole big billionaires run the world type thing. Mm. But what has what The Guardian did some really good reporting on and the fucking problem with this uh, bushfire recovery fund is that you have to apply for parts of the fund with government grants. And the application process of those grants is deliberately complicated it is deliberately obtuse and it's really really hard to access those funds unless of course you are a multi-billion dollar company and that's what you always do anyway all of the time most of these time workers applying for grants exactly these companies have whole departments whose entire reason for existing is to just write and review and rewrite and re-review grant application processes Mm. and so as soon as the bushfire recovery fund was set up They were just hitting it as soon as they fucking can. And so not only do you have billionaires getting more money to just upgrade their facilities in this weird, like, uh, hope that trickle-down economics will start kicking in again. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the the paper mill will pick up and they'll have demand for more paper, which will mean more trees will need to be planted in the bushfire-ravaged areas or some shit. I don't know, but maybe maybe some more demand and supply will come up. It'll be really good. Sure. (laughs) I think we should offer some context as to why they applied for this money in the first place, other than the obvious wealth transfer. Yeah. Mitch mentioned that the mill wasn't damaged in any way, but their justification for actually applying for this $10 million grant was saying that they still suffered a loss of income because of the widespread loss of plantations because, like, Mm. about 62,000 hectares of New South Wales State Forest uh, was lost 
and that was like all timber plantation. So the plantations around the Vizzy Mill were all decimated. So they actually asked for the grant on the basis of, well, our income is gone. We need this $10 million um, not just to upgrade the mill but also to replant this entire forest. But Mm. this is like the weird part though. So like the industry struggling for a lack of trees and so the answer is to increase the production capacity for what trees? Yeah, it it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the $10 million is going towards like upgrading their factory but like – and, and they justify it on the basis of there not being any trees anymore. But then, like... Right, we've run out of trees, so please give us some money so that we can chop down the trees that we do have quicker, is the sort of the way that it's panned out. Yeah. And this is ignoring just the whole blatant thing that the last thing you want to be doing after a bushfire is putting any money into logging or paper mills or anything. You should be scaling all of those things down, and we've hit that point a lot in the past. This country bloody loves cutting down trees. We simply love to do it. And, like, of course, the larger point is that Anthony Pratt is a billionaire and definitely could take some money out of his own sort of personal assets or savings or anything to help his company thrive but chooses not to and instead dips into the pool of funds that's necessary to help actual people and businesses get back on their feet. He's worth just over $11 billion. He's Australia's richest man, and yet we have people in those areas living in shipping containers with the bare minimum of plumbing and electricity attached to them, sitting, waiting for funds from this bushfire recovery fund. We have, like, little sports clubs and little, like, charity groups and whatnot who are having to hire professional copywriters to review their grant applications to send it off just in the hope that they might be considered for like $300,000. Sorry, just I just I, I just want to uh, issue just a little factual clarification. He's actually the third richest person in Australia this year, but his wealth swelled from $15.57 billion to $19.75 billion. Mm. He got he got richer this year by several like, you know, billions of dollars. So, there you go. And we wouldn't call him a pandemic profiteer, even though there was a pandemic and he did make a profit. I don't think it's right to say he profited off the pandemic. It's just he profited during the pandemic, right? <laughs> we we should point out also that he does give back. And by give back, I mean just before the last election, he gave $1.6 million back to Labor and $1.4 million back to the coalition. <laughs> so, oh, so that's $200,000 oh. preferencing towards the Labor Party. So really, he's a lefty, hey? So he, <laughs> he gave $3 million. And he's just got back ten million. So that's a pretty good investment. He's a smart guy. Yeah, that's where that's where I got the uh, eleven billion from. Eleven billion US. That scales uh, up. <laughs> Great. Oh, that's handy. Good stuff. I really like that it's the bushfire recovery fund that's like, oh, so Australia was devastated by bushfires and it really threw the sort of distribution of wealth towards billionaires <laughs> really out of whack. So we've established this bushfire fund to just get us back on course, funneling huge amounts of money into the pockets of people who already have it, uh, leaving people who actually need it in the dirt. It's the Australian way. They just need to be better at applying for grants. <laughs> um, and, and of course, the, the obvious solution here is when you have a thing like this, don't force people to apply for grants. Part of that fund should be paying for people to distribute the money and they're helping people to get those grants, um, as we've covered in the past. Yeah, this is like my my sort of uh, – I, I like to rail a lot against the idea of means testings. I think a lot of like – Mm. progressives and liberals still like the idea of means testing in the in the sense that we don't want people who are already wealthy to get more money and so we're going to set up this sort of barrier to entry which is fine yeah. until 
the person who's setting up those barriers to entries doesn't want anyone who's poor to get that money. And so those barriers to entry usually mean that anyone who really deserves that money usually doesn't get it. And you've always got to run the risk of someone rich getting a bit too much money or you're going to run the risk of people who are poor not getting the money they need. And in this case, we've we've done both. Well, I think it's just that when you set up a barrier to entry, who's good at overcoming barriers? Wealthy people. <laughs> yes, they will pay someone to do it. Done. They're, if they've got wealth, it's easier to overcome really any barrier because wealth is just a general utility that you can use. It's, it's even to the point of like those barriers, like they're not barriers for wealthy people. That is the thing. It's like mm. it's, e- it's easy for wealthy people to overcome them because they are set up to wave through wealthy people. Yeah. Like th- those barriers create jobs for wealthy people and then they can get through, but they, they, they deliberately don't want people. It's the same thing with you know political parties. You have to have a certain amount of capital to start up so we don't have the bloody riffraff just doing what they want. But when it, when it comes to a fucking bushfire recovery fund, for fuck's sake, why is anyone writing like actual government uh, funding requests? This is it. Yeah, why do you need to write a grant? Just send somebody over to your property and be like, fuck, this house is burnt down. Here's your money. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's that easy. It like and people are like, oh, it's not that easy. You need some level. You don't. You literally don't. Absolutely. Send somebody out of the house, be like, shit, it's burnt down. Here's your money. Done. Actions this week. Uh, we didn't really cover it in the episode, but the uh, group of refugees known as the Mantra 60 have been moved out of the Mantra Hotel, which was using to imprison them for the last couple of years, and they've been moved to the Park Hotel in Carlton. Um, this situation is just really shit. They're basically not criminals, uh, and they are in need of medical care, but they are part of the uh, Australian refugee system, which is just a horrific and demonising thing. So they've just basically been trapped in a hotel for ages, and now they're trapped in a different hotel. Um, There is basically just this ongoing protest out the front of the Park Hotel in Carlton that is people who are, one, protesting against the Australian government for... You know, we were talking about the tower lockdown for violating the human rights of these refugees. Uh, but there's also a strong factor of just the refugees can see out the window, uh, not as well as they could in the mantra. The Park Hotel apparently has frosted windows, so you can't even see out. But um, just, the you know, going there and giving them a wave and, uh, you know, holding up a stay strong sign and stuff. Like, it, it's a show of support for some people who are, some, who are in some really fucking difficult conditions yeah so um yeah just uh, if you can make if you're in the if you're in the area go down and and help out yeah and there's no time yeah. it needs to be said it, it is an ongoing round the clock protest anytime you can get down there any material mm. aid that you can give the people protesting will be fucking greatly appreciated yeah yeah also write to your write to your local member especially if there's someone like jed kearney who says they support the refugees being freed but still won't stand up to their party to actually do something about it mm. And if it makes the Park Hotel look pretty shitty, uh, having a massive ongoing protest out the front, that's good too. Because this is a private company that has decided to take on a government contract to be effectively uh, a detainment centre. Um, so, fuck them. Yeah, they've clearly looked at their balance sheet and been like, well, the government will give us a bunch of money to become a prison for a while. And so, if they forgot to factor in that being loathed by society mm. would be a dip on their profits, then they should be reminded Also, of yeah, what kind of hotel company is like, oh, we're taking a hit on profits. Should we be a prison now? Yeah, okay, let's be a prison. 
You can always just go out of business, guys. That's an option. The Park Hotel is actually owned by Ridges. So if you, like, I know coronavirus is stopping anyone from going on any particular holidays, depending on where you are at the moment. But if at any point over Christmas and New Year, over the next couple of months, you're planning to stay at a hotel, don't pick a Ridges Hotel. Add them to your list of companies supporting the shitty Australian refugee processing system. Um, another real good action that you can take uh, is uh, divest your banking and super. That is just if you have got any of your money stored in a organization that uh, invests in fossil fuels. This is the big four banks and a lot of superannuation places. You can move your money out of that. It's not even really difficult. There's marketforces.org.au, which has a bunch of guides to tell you where you can take your money. Um, that's just it's one of the most effective actions that you can individually take to slow the you know aliens that are paying out the uh, fossil the government. You know that whole riff. <laughs> yeah, it's again. a very solid theory. Um, another one, if you can as well, support the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and I'm going to do it, uh, support the Renters and Housing Union as well. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, if you can, RAFWU, and I mean, there's a bunch of different cool places you can you can go to, but our favourite union on the podcast, pretty officially, I think, is the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. They kicked some massive fucking goals through 2020, um, and they need all the financial support that they can get to keep doing that. So, check them out, A-U-W-U, chuck a Google, and start giving them a monthly recurring uh, donation. Um, and also, shout outs this week. Uh, Mitch was on the drum. Uh, so, he was on national television. So, if we're plugging national television, you know, <laughs> Maybe that's going in the wrong direction there. Actions. Check out the drum when it comes back for its 2021 season. <laughs> There's this new indie channel called the ABC, and uh, I reckon just give them a crack. They're, they've got some good stuff on there. Um, and also, just wanted to shout out our just our, our friend podcast, uh, Ospol Snack Pod. They're basically just doing what we're doing. Just some some guys having a riff on the the news of the week, but we love them a lot. And uh, if you want some more of this, uh, we've got a, a big back catalogue, but we've also got other lefty podcasts in Australia, and they're one of them. A big, a, a good thing about Ospol Snack Pod is that they eerily, like, I think nine out of ten weeks, they manage to cover the other big news of the week that we don't get to. Like, we just never sync up. We're a perfect uh, companion <laughs> podcast. It's a Ospol complimentary Snackpod. podcast. It's great. Yeah, you get both podcasts, you are completely covered. Yeah, there's really, there's really no shortage of just insane things that happen in Australia every week. And every week we'll go, ah, well, maybe we'll cover this stuff next week. And then every single time the government goes, hey, what if we made kangaroos illegal? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, no, we don't have time to cut it. We want to the- talk about the fossil fuel aliens. It's just, it just doesn't make it in. <laughs> just pictured the coat of arms and one of the animals is black bagged. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Not Good Enough. You can get in touch with us on all the socials at NotGoodPod or email us notgoodpod at protonmail.com. Uh, we really love hearing feedback, especially praise, but uh, feedback of all kinds. So let us know what you thought and uh, yeah, get in touch. It's awesome. Uh, it's also really helpful if you leave reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you listen to. Uh, that should just help us out. Not Good Enough is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We want to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded.